Thanks, everyone. For, um, yeah, keeping tuned. I'm, I'm very pleased to be here to um, present the market again. I think it's been like six years since I last presented here, it's been four or five years ago. Well, not first. It's very nice to be here in person. Thank you for, for everyone who's here. Thank you also for everyone who's online. Um, I'm an average listener um, of, of the seminar series. I really appreciate them still in the online format. One of the key seminars still do that. For the market for it, I'm very pleased with this. So, thank you for that. Um, yes, I'm going to be talking to you about Zalaka. Tonight, Zalaka is really going to make that and he is arch theorist of the Trump. He was leader of the international movement for independence. He was president of the Nasaba, which was the unanimous party at the time. And the nationalist place with the movement is controversial. I want to say that the Salaka reputation legacy right after independence was tarnished by the implication in the Kandinava trial. Um, he was a prophet, but, um, but sort of neutralized, was neutralized after that. And let me say says how he's been challenging the movement. Please click to the next slide. Um, yes, yeah, so, so that's in that's in the that you wrote. Actually, I meant the slide after that. Sure, I forgot about this. that's okay. This um, one, yes, exactly. So, kind of canonization is taking place, and here we have so like um, have a kind of picture with Pratapani of Sabha in 2003. Here we have kind of a you know, stock photo of the Roman Modi, um, kind of paying um, paying his respects, um, to Sabha's portrait. And then there's a lot more recent issue. I don't know if you saw this going from the past the summer, which is that the Gandhi Memorial um, runs a um they can read a journal and Sabaka appeared on the part of that. So again and again, um as a record has been challenged in the Mount Father, he's thrown in and identified with his lifelong enemy ground. Closer. Everyone's saying it's not clear, um, sorry. <laughs> Now, Sabaka was famous even before he got to Um, He had been a student radical in, uh, in London at the beginning of the 20th century and his activism for independence and education, and yet another nation in which he didn't pull the trigger, um, after the transportation of the right to the elements uh, in, in that 1910. Now, on his trip over to India, just trying to again at Marseille, kind of made that for it. So he kind of you know, he carried up himself out in the bathroom and jumped out of, out of the window into the Mediterranean and swam ashore and um, asked for asylum there. Now he was recaptured and he was brought to India after all and sent him to the Andamans. But this was an adventure in the NSA. He became a case in international law and over the legality of his recapture and international law. And uh, as a consequence, he became an international Zabaka was already famous then 13 years later. And by this time, repatriated to India world under house arrest, he published the centuries of the world. If you saw the picture on the first slide there. Zabaka was dark and political activity at the time, so he hid behind the name of the Aimrat. Now, the book may actually be familiar to under a different name, um, which is a subtitle that was acquired in subsequent editions, and this is through a you click on the next slide. 
that just is from a previous existing or something like that. So in the universe, originally it was the center. Now, even some of the fixed and the being the asymptote. And he didn't do that with three definitions, which is what other people had been doing. In fact, if we just stuck to all definitions, what he did is he made um, he started that universe, but what is that universe? So the question of the time was who is a Hindu? Someone had made the bone arms and said the Hindu is. And if you want to read a bit more about kind of where I'm coming from conceptually, come as one kind of answers. So no more obvious definitions of what the Hindu is is a legal identity, it's a territorial one, is it is it religious, and if it is religious, and what about it? So now I said that people stopped that. Um, he rescued the Hindu from being kind of political subjects and he said to everything else. Now, however, we're this book about Hindu and he wrote many more books within the Hindu The book he did not write is Who Are the Muslims? But of course, he engaged centrally to questions of identity, which was redefining the political question of it. And this, it is in many ways against um, this special political identity that are uh, fixed. So what I want to tackle in, in this talk is the question of Muslim identity and identity. And we will just go into some, some arguments and some um, kind of um, research that will be part of my book that can be coming within the new framework. So who were the Muslims? What was their origin in the what was some of his particular Muslim problem and what was his question? Now, there's plenty of material in the books that I've read in his past and papers, and his correspondence, and press releases, and whatnot, um, as is present in my server, kind of string together throughout the book. And the book and the this is um, part of what I want to be doing today. Let's start with race. Um, anyone who knows any, anything about my work knows that there is no getting around race in, in my reading of Sabaka. So this is the first thing that I want to convince you of, that Sabaka's project was about race. Hindus, wrote Sabaka and Hanukkah, were quote, not only a Rashka, a nation, but also a Jati, meaning a common blood or race. This is remarkable, um, given Indians' visible ethnic diversity, and moreover, their separation by caste. So what's going on here? What kind of idea of race can we define first? Now, the first thing that we must do um, to answer this question is to liberate ourselves from Nazi ideas, um, kind of that, that, that form a kind of template in thinking about race in the period, seductive, you know, though this kind of um, template might be in the literature. So where race ideologies oftentimes fixated on purity and pedigree, and obviously Aryanism and eugenics, um, Hindutva's racism was about kinship and biological relation. The Nazi racism actually, well, I said work on that a tiny bit, is a lot more complicated, a lot more interesting than that, um, with, with a kind of truncated stereotype version that appears in the South Asian literature. So I want to argue against that. This is not what Sabakar's racism uh, was. So for Sabakar, um, Hindus were raised not because they were uniform and phenotype or origin or anything like that, but because they were all related. For Sabakar, what connected them as a race, kind of blue, 
um, so to speak, was all around miscegenation as the racers would call it, right? Intermarriage is the word known here. And of course, it's bringing in house. So how could all Indians, or, I'm sorry, um, all Hindus be biologically related given that division into castes? The answer that Talaka offered was that the caste system wasn't, you know, wasn't what it had made out to be. So while colonial anthropologists and orientalists agreed that caste reflected a kind of racial divide, you know, stemming from the Aryan conquest, I think we all, we all know this trope of kind of you know, white Aryans of dark Dravidians, um, indigenous Dravidians. Um, it was the idea that caste indexed a kind of racial division that was perpetuated as such in, in South Asia. And in fact, um, this is part of the origin, origin story of the term caste in early modern Iberia America, um, from whence it was shipped uh, to India by the Portuguese. So if you want to hit, like if you want to go to, go to the next slide. Great, yeah. Um, just using one mic, that's all, because. All right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So some charges. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what we have here is the Demos de Castas painting um, as they, as they kind of appear from the early modern period onwards. I don't know if you can read it necessarily from the back of the room, but we have basically the, the idea that there are different categories of people. So like in the first picture we have an Espanol from India, so Spaniard and, um, and from Native American woman, and their child is a Mexico. And it kind of goes on from that. So it's kind of, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of, it gives an idea of, it's kind of a, a system for classifying racial mixture in the Americas, actually. And this sort of idea was shipped, um, shipped to India. So the idea that um, caste and race are kind of um, uh, a kind of um, mutually implicated in the origin um, is there. So caste, the idea is indexed social division and, and racial divide. But for Sabakar, um, caste was fusion itself. So it's kind of different, different from, from the story. So if we look at the Sistema de Castas painting again, um, with its graded mixture, there are a few pure types, you know, um, Espanol, India, etc. Um, and, and the rest are kind of different combinations of these types, right? And then there are combinations of combinations and combinations of combinations of combinations. So every union creates a new subcast, as it were, that, that's the sort of idea here. Now, one way of seeing this is that um, there is nothing but separation. Right, um, you know, different just like proliferates, but another is that as different proliferates, mixture actually deepens, and this is the idea of caste that Sabakar had. In Hindutva and elsewhere, he, he restates the Brahmanical theory of the origin of jatis or subcaste uh, through licit and illicit unions across the kind of four divisions of Brahma. But rather than division or degeneration, as a eugenicist at the time might have thought, Sabakar, um, this pr proliferation of caste, you know, 10,000 or whatever of jatis, gave a testimony to a common flow of blood from a Brahmin to a gender. So the idea is that different castes were not different races, but the totality of the caste system um, constituted a single, if heterogeneous, um, diverse. Race. The caste system as a whole gained the cohesion of what I, in my work, call the reproductive network um, as you know, exogamy, um, despite romantical injunctions 
produced a common bond of blood. So miscegenation had actually established genetic unity. And mind you, this is not altogether far off a modern understanding of population genetics, right? Which kind of where the essentialism of national races has given way to to view of kind of um, yeah, I guess very very variability, kind of a cloud of you know difference within populations. That's kind of how we see populations now. And one could even make a case, um, kind of reading through, um, yeah, through uh, researchers, uh, biological researchers in India in the 1920s and 30s, that the modern synthesis, as it is called, the synthesis of um, the Darwinian evolution um, with Mendel's theory of inheritance in the 20s and 30s, um, disproved that biological fusion led to deoxygenation, right? Um, now, be that as it may, Savarka certainly kept current with contemporary researchers into heredity and race, and he had assimilated, um, you know, not, not only, of, of course, Darwin, uh, Herbert Spencer, but also Thomas Henry Huxley, John Tyndall, and Ernst Heinrich Hecker. Yeah, so he has a, has a kind of um, more nuanced understanding of, of race than, than some of his um, race ideologues, uh, some of the race uh, ideologues of the time. But in taking this approach, he didn't like throw out the baby with the bathwater. So he acknowledged that there was a mixture across all humankind, but the idea wasn't to deconstruct the Hindu, on the contrary. The Hindu had grown, he said, by mixing in more deeply and absorbing what lay just outside of it. So the Hindu nation had grown um, as it conquered the South and biologically fused all the people of Hindustan into kind of one, one Hindu race. Um, so there was a kind of frontier of admixture and the Hindu kind of grew along that frontier. Its modus operandi was internal colonization. So Savaka forged Hindus into a national race from sexual and reproductive unions across caste. Of course, he knew that the lived reality of caste was you know, anything but that was far off this ideal. Um, caste injunctions and fear of pollution um, curtailed the reproductive network from which he built the Hindu. Um, so he wanted to reestablish it. And to reestablish it, uh, he publicly interacted with Dalits, and he was always telling Brahmin fathers to marry their sons to Dalit girls. I needn't tell you how socially transgressive this was in India at the time, or even now, and it was considered miscegenation um, by the racists of the time. So whatever else he was, Sadaka was not conservative. But this doesn't mean that we should build our emancipatory dreams of kind of a post-caste, post-race world on him. But he just, he complicates, he pushes us to, to take caste thinking and anti-caste uh, anti an art of a good, bad binary. And he complicates the story of what race meant um, during the global fascist movement. But even if an offense against purity, which I think you know, Savarkar's uh, race thinking was, the implications of, of, it, of his thinking could be just as deadly. Right? It doesn't need purity for that, um, to, to, have, to have a kind of violence uh, in, in his ideas of race. So where, where were the Muslims in all this? Now, it is often thought that Savarkar considered them a foreign race that polluted the Hindu blood. And uh, the vast bulk of the literature on Hindu nationalism focused on the exclusion of the Muslim Arab. 
either this is what Hindu, Hindu club does, it excludes them as an other. But I'm trying to convince you otherwise. I'm trying to convince you that Muslims were not a foreign race, was ever at all, and that exclusion was actually not up to the task of destroying them for him. Um, so make no mistake, he did want to destroy them, but exclusion was not, not in their fault. Savaka never strayed from his, hardly, hardly ever, strayed from his view that Indian Muslims were indigenous converts of Hindu blood. And actually the Mahasabha and the Savaka used that as an argument um, to refute Indian Muslims' claim to, uh, to separate nation of their you know, India is not, or Hindustan, as they would call it, is not a multiracial state. You know, it's not like the USSR, it's not like the USA, but there's only one race. And this is the kind of not so nice um, meaning of the slogan, Hindu uh, and Muslims are brothers, right? So India's Muslims were a community or minority for Savaka, but he denied the nation status. They were part of the Hindu race, as it were. The issue was that the Muslims, though of the blood, did not have the will to be one of the Hindus. So it hasn't escaped scholars uh, that Savaka, in his youthful work of the Nandanias, the Indian War of Independence of 1857, if you click to the next slide, I will put a picture of it right there, um, a kind of a story of Hindu-Muslim cooperation against the common British enemy. It would then, um, appear that Hindutva, which was published 14 years after this book, marks a radical shift, right? But this is, I believe, misleading. Um, and so far, Savarkar never con contemplated Hindu-Muslim unity in a Gandhian or Republican frame. So what I think this is all about, this kind of um, shift that people have observed, is that for Savarkar, at the time of writing the Indian War of Independence of 1857, which was um, published also anonymously, um, in 1909, and, and restated throughout his career, uh, is that the prerequisite of Hinduism unity in that moment was the rebirth of Hindu sovereignty and the prior destruction of Muslim sovereignty in India. And the Maratha episode was here. here. Um, if, you, if you look at the pseudonym that he uses in 1909, an Indian nationalist, and then the one that he would use in Hindutva, which is a Maratha, you know, that there's a shift taking place. Also, it's not, um, at the same time as Hindutva, he published a book, a history of the Marathas, of the Maratha Empire called Hindutva So what happened in the decade and a half between these two publications is that Savaka realized that the Indian Muslim potentiality for sovereignty was not dead. And the Khilafat was really a key experience here. Only once Muslim sovereignty or the potentiality of sovereignty was dead and Muslims had sacrificed a separate ambition, could Hindus, quote, join hands with them as the, quote, brothers by blood that Savarkar always knew them to be. So the first thing here is that Savarkar must um, crush Muslim political will. Now, by the late 1930s, this seemed impossible, right? And it is in this context that Savarkar formulated his own version of the two-nation theory. Muslims, uh, he explained on a kind of whirlwind tour of uh, India in 38 and 39, regarded Hindus as enemies and Hindustan as the, the enemy land. Division was mayor, illusion, but if India's Muslims practiced it, so must the Hindus, who were forever um, quick to like, renounce their, their own soul, their, their individual soul, and kind of merge that into the absolute, um, even if, if their Muslim brothers were not. 
So you, you always kind of have, has an issue with this kind of pedantic um, idea that kind of gives up the, the, the past and the soul. And Sabaka was corroborated um, in so arguing by Fala Mahasawa leader Yasmin Jay in a 1943 press statement um, where he said, if Muslims insisted on turning themselves into foreigners and enemies of Hindustan, well, though factually untrue because they weren't foreigners um, in Hindustan, then they deserve to be treated as such, though. Now, Munja had issued this statement to quell con uh, controversy over Sabakar's repeated public assertions that Hindus and Muslims were brothers, that they were one race. So by political will, Muslims had made themselves a nation, though not a race apart. But of course, such parasitic nationhood, which you know, Sabakar would view it, did not entitle India's Muslims to self-determination. There's a lot of kind of, um, uh, yeah, there, there's, um, uh, a diet, uh, reputation of um, the right to self-determination going on uh, in, in, in diplomatic circles at the time. Nor could they claim dominion in Hindustan, which belonged to only one nation race, which is the Hindus. Right? So this was the context in which Shavaka actually did threaten India's Muslims with the fate of the Jews, um, who he considered a foreign race in, in Germany, and that's Germany at the time, but not in India. So for example, Jews can be assimilated, you know, they're, they're, they're harmless in India and Germany, but it matters if it's a different one. Um, and infamously, like some of you may know this, um, RSS leader Golbaka also gave Indian minorities a blunt choice between um, either com complete assimilation or, or annihilation, pattern on the all absorbing power of religion, which is you know, un improbable, and the Nazi purge of the Jews. But unlike Olbaka, I believe that Savaka's investment in Muslim incorporation in a specific way was real. For what was at stake for him was the erasure of the Muslim as a potential site of sovereignty. Now, sovereignty for Savaka was always the gender of male, and the Muslim men were capable of sovereignty. And this capability needed to be crushed out of them in order for them to be absorbed, if absorption was possible. Now, here we see that the civil war logic um, that played itself out during partition, as Ruti Kapila explains in her brilliant new book. But Muslim women were much more assimilable for Sabaka. Their integration was biological and gendered and reproductive. Now, let me illustrate this by way of an example from the archives um, from Sabaka's papers in, in Timurti, like Nehru Memorial Museum and Library where in July 1940, a branch postmaster in Jammu State named, named um, Primdata Sharma wrote to Sabakar uh, as president of the Hindu Mahasabha. And he sought his counsel um, over the kind of matrimonial choices before uh, a certain friend that he had. This friend belonged to a, quote, respectable Brahmin family, but he wished to marry a Muslim girl. The girl was of age and, quote, had no objection and was willing to be converted in the way our Hindu dharma allows it permits. But there lay the issue. Quote, kindly, would Savakar say if our dharma allows such marriages? End quote. Now, Savakar's office in his reply dropped a certain friend as an alias straight away. It's like, if I was a certain friend, is this you? Um, and advised that Sharma immediately marry the Muslim girl for, quote, he, that is Savakar, 
thinks that marrying other girls from other religions and getting them converted into Hindu religion is not a sin, but a bounden duty of every Hindu youth. End quote. Other religions, Islam, did so freely, right? They increased their numbers, while the Hindus quote, have lost and are losing their, pop their population strength day by day. End quote. Should Shama find it, quote, impossible to celebrate his marriage at home, he should go to Amritsar or Bombay, where the Arya Samanj, uh, or the local Hindu Sabha, would, quote, willingly assist them. And, quote, anyhow, you will not lose this opportunity in marrying the Muslim girl and getting her converted into our Hindu religion. And, <clears throat> now, remarkably, Sabaka inserted a handwritten note into this type of letter. And it was full of kind of unbridled um, anger and first-person emotion. He wrote that quote, the Hindus have been silly enough to lose their girls to the Muslim fold, but to add a girl to Hinduism was a sin, exclamation mark. He wrote, quote, we must give up this absurdity, another exclamation mark. So what we see here um, is the anxiety of Muslims are populating Hindus that PK Dutta beautifully explores in his article on dying Hindus. The idea being that the superior power of Hindus over Muslims in India was tied to their population strength and was declared. So Sabaka not only permits intercommunal marriage and conversion, the two of them are always, you know, you can't have one without the other, conversion being shitty, uh, of Muslims into the Hindu thought, but he frames it as a duty, like bounding duty. So what he does with caste, he actually also does with religion. Um, intermarriage was the means Sabaka to consolidate the Hindu subject. Right? These barriers have to go. The Hindu could only kind of emerge um, through the breaking down of these, these barriers, and the Muslim could only um, disappear and, and be, be dealt with through incorporation in this way. So, as a consequence, Sabaka's Hinduism was at war with Orthodox Hinduism. And yeah, um, and there's kind of <laughs> a war that goes both ways and is. Um, his incoming correspondence as Nidha from Mahasabha actually um, did, did testify to that. There's a lot of incoming from like Orthodox, uh, Orthodox Hindu organizations being like, well, what on earth are you doing, right? In many ways, Savaka actually modeled the Hindu on his enemy with whom he intensely identified the Muslim man. So it's Muslims who do not put intermarriage beyond the pale of sin, according to Savaka. They are not hemmed in by caste. Um, they proselytize, they intermarry, and they take back their fallen women. Hindus must do this too. Now contrast this with Gandhi and, and Gandhi's opposition to, to marrying his son, uh, to, to his son's wish to marry a Muslim woman, Fatima. Now Gandhi's anxiety about racial and religious indoctrination, the, the lust that founded them as well known. Um, but perhaps we can, I don't know about letting him off the hook, but um, Maybe perhaps a little, let him off the hook more easily if we contrast him with what Sabaka is doing. What does he do? Well, Sabaka weaponizes into marriage and, and conversion, which he distills down to the kind of basic element of sex and reproduction. And the idea is to dissolve the Muslim and reassemble her as the Hindu. So women are at the crux of Sabaka's project. But Muslim women, um, for Sabaka, are not a true subject. They don't really exist in a, in a, in a real way. Um, Muslim men are, the are of Hindu blood, they are true subjects, but Muslim women aren't. 
Um, the Muslim woman for Sabaka could not be an original identity. And this can be seen, for example, by the way in which he tried to influence Muslim personal law. So in, he, he intervened in debates preceding the dissolution of the Muslim Marriage Act of 1939, where he advocated that a Muslim woman's conversion to Hinduism should suffice to dissolve her marriage to a Muslim husband. But I'm actually here translating Sawakar's logic into a different logical system because he didn't actually speak of Muslim women, and this is really striking. So by a striking slippage for Sawakar, the Muslim women at issue in this bill became, quote, Hindu widows or virgins, married women having their husbands alive, but enticed away by Muslims and often married to some Muslims, end quote. So the Muslim woman's conversion becomes a rescue as if from a prior misappropriation. And the convert actually becomes a revert, right? Behind her lurked the Hindu woman that she had been, or could have been, or should have been. Well, Sabaka failed. Um, the dissolution of Muslim Marriages Act uh, no longer treated apostasy as grounds for divorce, um, but enforced the rather ominous um, restitution of conjugal rights. So as I said, the reproductive network of the caste system, as Sabaka saw it, gained cohesion from myriad sexual connectivities, right? So being incorporated into this reproductive network was the way in which foreigners and conquerors and, and those on the margins have for millennia um, been assimilated into the Hindu race. The first and only group to remain uh, unassimilable into the reproductive network were the Muslims. They became endogamous, like caste or, or jati in the, the anthropological definition, and seceded from the Hindu body politic. Now, how had this been possible in South Africa? This is how. Um, so Hinduism and caste, as Savaka viewed them, allowed inward facing internal colonization. But by um, contrast, Islam was outward facing and imperial. So Savaka envisioned Islam itself as an agent, right? Um, that does something to, to Muslims, an agent of imperialism that erased other nations and races in its path and folded them into the Muslim nation. So from the moment that Islam was born, quote, Arabia ceased to be what Arabia was and overflowed, um, conquering and Islamizing everything from Granada to Afghanistan. So Islam's power to grow in this way by accretion trumped Hindustan's traditional power of incorporation, right? One is outward facing, the other is kind of in inward facing, and that was the problem. Sabaka was not alone in thinking that Islam had race and nation and properties at the time. The parallels in Muslim political thought, um, for sure. And there, there are also other parallels um, in, let's call it Hindu thought, maybe to an extent. So for example, um, there was a Rukhana and his disciple, Hisanya Vedita, who was born in Nagar Nodi, and Ruth Harris has a beautiful new book out on the Rukhananda. Um, and the Vedita spoke on, East, uh, on, on the Eastern concept of nationhood, as she called it, uh, at the first Universal Racist Congress in London in 1911. Now, she argued that unlike the kind of Western civic concept of, of, of nationhood, the Eastern concept was based on the family ideal, so on, on consanguinity um, at the end of the day. And this was encapsulated, kind of brought to its height in Islam. Nivedita explained that because Islam encouraged intermarriage, 
between all co-religionists, regardless of ethnicity, it was const uh, constantly growing by accretion. So Islam was an exceptionally strong force um, of, of nation making. Not only that, but Indian nationality was Benedita, actually derivative of Islam to a great extent, um, though Hinduism and Harvey wasn't without kind of something like internal organizing principle either. But it was only the arrival of Islam that had kind of brought about an old Indian concept of nationality. And this was Anna Akbar, who had fused Hindu and Muslims um, and thus repeated the, what she called the quote, welding of warring brothers into united family, end quote, of tribes in Arabia, uh, what, what, what Muhammad had done there. Now, Nivedita called upon Indians and Muslims to revive this power. Um, but not to link up with Arabia, but like to use it for India to bind Indian nationality together. Now, for Savakar, there was something in Islam that imparted the sort of nationality by the touch of conversion. Something that made Hindu converts to Islam, which you know he considered Indian Muslims to be converts, made them set themselves apart and turn against their own blood, turn enemies to kill up their brothers in the way. And he has different different ways of describing this, but like I think his, his later description of it is that as kind of you know an instant fanaticism that Islam has. You know, you get converted and become fanatic straight away, and you forget your parentage. So, as a consequence of this property of Islam, the reproductive network that forged unity out of difference um, in India could not reverse the Muslim conquest, as it had all other other conquests. And he was um, you know, throughout his career he returned again and again to the trope of how the, the ancient Greeks, um, when, they, when they came, they had intermarried with Hindus and been absorbed. You know, this, this was always how India, or Hindustan as they called it, um, had dealt with, 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 with um, conquerors. But with Muslims, it was different. Islam was, was un, uh, un, un, uh, assimilable in this way. So speaking in 1938, Savakar argued that the leaders of the Mokhla rebellion in 1921 and two had shown that the true base of nationality was not territory, um, it, wasn't a, it was religious, cultural, and racial unity. And they showed this, he argued, when they took to forcibly converting Hindus. Now appropriating this kind of, the, the Muslims' capability to make a national race Hindutva aimed to reverse the direction of family making, nation making, to kind of from making Muslims to reproducing Hindus, right? So as Muslims had carved themselves out of the Hindu body politic um, and made themselves internal enemy, they needed to be purged by incorporation through conversion and marriage. As I said, they, were all, they always come together for him and uh, also come forcible if need be. Now, at this point, I have to dwell on the partition and the gender violence, because it really is in this context that Savaka unleashed the full violence of Hindutva. So, belated trigger warnings. So, Savaka justified partition rapes after the fact uh, in a literary form uh, in, in his latest and in, in his last book, which he wrote when he was a sick and broken man in 1963, Six Glorious Epochs of Indian History. If we go to the next slide.
But he didn't just do that, but he also actively recommended the rape of Muslim women to Henry Rashtradal, which was like the Mahasabha's youth military wing, um, in May 1947, not just months away from the Indian partition. Now, as I said, Soraka regarded Muslims as converts of kingly blood, but implicit in this was a second framing, actually a, a different framing. It kind of gives an intriguing spin to this like idealized um, idea of Muslim hierarchy in the subcontinent between Ashraf and Ashraf, right? So uh, alleged descendants of India's foreign Islamic conquerors and indigenous converts. So in 1938, Savaka raised alarm over systematic Muslim proselytization in Burma, which saw Muslim men fraudulently um, marrying Burmese uh, Buddhist women, which, you know, for Sabaka, you know, lead, you know, Hindu women, um, to spawn Muslim progeny. And if, if unstopped, he wrote, uh, Muslim proselytism would, quote, break up the racial, religious, and cultural homogeneity in the Burmese nation and divide it, um, as happened in India and mainly through the same process, end quote. And elsewhere, he wrote of Indian Muslims as sort of hybrids who had, quote, forgotten their Hindu mothers and took instead after their Muslim fathers, who swear an enmity on their Hindu half-brothers. So are their brothers or are their half-brothers? Now in six glorious epochs, um, Savaka's only book written after the partition, actually, um, Savaka finally scaled partition time abductions into a, a new story of the origin of Muslims in India. He now argued that a small band of male inv Muslim invaders had grown into a community many, many millions strong in India um, by capturing, converting, raping, marrying Hindu women. So Savaka had earlier insisted that Hindus and Muslims were brothers by blood. His late theorization actually kind of introduced gender difference into descent, um, which made Indian Muslim men foreign by patrilineal descent, and it made of Indian Muslim women, Hindu women, captured by Muslim invaders. He argued that in taking Hindu wives, the Muslim had religious sanction. He said that the Quran permitted sex with an enslaved female. Um, this is in a 1925 newspaper article that um, Sabaka dropped as a kind of bomb onto Kohat, where kind of, <laughs> um, you know, the little strong communism in India, Kohat in, in, you know, in the, the 20s, was the place that saw communal violence escalate to a whole new level, right? So Savaka drops this newspaper article as a bomb there to incite more violence. The Quran, Savaka um, insisted, allowed, quote, capturing a woman as an article of the duties of war, end quote. This practice, uh, he argued, followed a very natural law, as he called it, a custom of the state of nature, that was also still followed by quote primitive African tribes. And he really explains that in this book um, later on in uh, Six Glorious Epochs. This was the law of Ravan, the Rakshas, a demon, who abducted Sita, as victors always had, um, namely by Rakshas marriage, by bride capture. Sabaka wrote in this book, to carry away the women of others and to ravish them is itself the supreme religious duty of the Rakshasas. Now, I have an article on Rakshasa marriage out, so I won't go into too, um, too much detail here, but let me just make a few points. So Rakshasa marriage by capture was an Anglo-Indian legal concept 
and an obsession for 19th century anthropologists. So if you look at the classics of, you know, kind of also like sociological theorizing, um, McLennan, Spencer, Henry Maine, um, even Levi Strauss, they all discuss this type of marriage. This archetype was taken straight from Manu. So rapturous marriage, according to Manu, is quote, marriage by the seizure of a maiden by force from a house while she weeps and calls for assistance after her kinsmen and friends have been slain in battle or wounded and their house is broken open, end quote. It is among, uh, among the disapproved types of marriage, but it is kind of permissible to patriarchs. Now, Savaka would have read about rapturous marriage for sure, <laughs> um, and the anthropolog uh, anthropology of wife capture in Spencer's principles um, of sociology of uh, 1874. We know that Savaka was a keen reader of Spencer. And it's also Spencer who made um, the cause of white capture and exogamy, so these two are, two are linked. Um, he made the cause of black capture and exogamy um, the practice of victorious tribes stealing uh, enemy women, so like the, the women folk of their enemies, to diminish enemy numbers. Now, since uh, Lute Menor, Kamala Dasson, and Bina Das, we view women. As, as the victims and battleground of partition, right? Now, in Sawaka, we actually have a theorist who made this avert, who made avert how women's sex and reproductive bodies became the stakes and objects and then battleground and booty um, during, the, uh, during the partition. He made women the base of sovereign violence to establish a new general social contract with Muslims who would be robbed as their sovereignty uh, or of their sovereignty as patriarchal power. And to achieve this, to, to achieve um, the, the, this overcoming of, of, of Muslims and Muslim um, capacity for power, he recommended a war strategy of kind of outdoweling the devil. So to beat the Muslim rakshas, the rakshas as, as he often called them, Hindus had to become fully like them. And he explained, um, he, distingu he distinguished what he called religious warfare from normal warfare, in that it required, religious warfare required kind of, quote, hyper-barbarity, kind of, you know, superlative at work here. So after the ancient religious wars with the demonic rakshasas, um, there had followed, he said, entirely, quote, political wars, uh, which did not require this war tactic, and it had been forgotten. Now, when religious war commenced anew with the Muslim conquest, the Hindus were unequipped to face it because chivalric values had rendered the Hindus armed the Kshatriyas incapable of vanquishing their Muslim foe by raping like So, what Saraka wanted Hindus to do is kind of jointly become Kshatriyas in the war against Muslims. And to, uh, to do this, the Hindus had to rely on Rakshas marriage. They had to become the abductor, Ravan, uh, the Muslim. Right, as he's often kind of identified um, by the Hindu right, in his fight against the hero of the story, the hero of Hindu tradition, the husband Rama, which is interesting. Now, Rapture's marriage um, inserted into anthropological tradition by McLennan, actually, um, indexed exogamy, while caste uh, was synonymous with endogamy. 
now if we click on the next slide, it actually is like a McLennan's committed marriage. Uh, <laughs> 1865, there's a footnote on page 48, which is super interesting. And it says, you can't read it from there, but it says, um, as the word endogamy and exogamy are new, an apology must be made for employment. Instead of endogamy, we might have, uh, might, uh, after some explanations, have used the word caste. The caste connotes several ideas besides that on which we try to fix attention. So caste and endogamy are actually identified in this final moment um, for, from kind of whence we, we get exogamy and um, endogamy. And as I explain in my article um, on a matter of marriage, um, the caste principle of, of marriage uh, was based on consent, on paternal consent, right? Um, it's, your, it's your parents giving you away in marriage, it's based on kind of a contract. And this was possible only uh, among fellow group members. Its opposite was exogamy, um, marriage outside of one's group, and rapturous marriage, the capture of wives from enemy tribes with whom there was and there could be no consensual patriarchal marriage uh, exchange. Now, Sadaka, in, in this kind of thought on, uh, on, on rapturous marriage and, and caste, jilted these anthropological definitions. Because for Savakara, as kind of I, I talked about earlier, caste system, uh, caste system as an initially practiced actually meant exogamy, right? As people married outside their Vajati, creating more and more subcastes. And this had a kind of consolidating effect on the Hindu race, um, a kind of centric petals kind of moving towards a, a, um, towards a common center rather than centric petals moving out. Um, uh, flow. But Sabaka criticized, you know, as strong as, as, as any, that caste had become endogamous in his own time. So in his, in his uh, last book, Six Glorious Epochs, a bitter, um, brutal and bitter book, he presented an alternative origin of the caste system. So in the book, it no longer, caste no longer appeared as the kind of great force that had assimilated in this ancient conquest, but as a conservative reaction to these conquests. Marriage injunctions and fear of pollution had developed to protect um, Hindu society from the impact of the conquests, but only the Muslim invasion, so after the kind of ancient invasions, only the later Muslim invasion had caused chaos to become entirely rigid. This is maybe an argument that you know from like Indian movement. It still, it still goes around with you know, caste um, as derivative of the Muslim invasions. It was, um, for Savaka, um, it, it was, caste was meant as a protective device um, after the Muslim invasions kind of lodged into Hindu society as a permanent barrier um, against Islam's race making, right? So it prevented those who had already gone over as it were from going back and taking more with them, taking more Hindus with them. But by the same token, because of, you know, becoming rigid, caste had actually become Islam's foothold in India. He argued really railed against how easy Islamic proselytization had been in India, uniquely easy, he said. He said it didn't even need a sword, actually. Um, it had been as, sim as simple as dropping, quote, half eaten loaves of bread or the meat of cows, end quote, into village wells, causing the drinkers to lose caste, be ostracized from Hindu society, and forever excluded from it. They had to go. So it was caste, caste uh, ostracism which ensured that conversion to Islam actually stuck 
right? putting uh, converts permanently beyond the pale of the society. So Muslim rule, he gets really bitter about this. Like Muslim rule in India didn't, didn't even need force of arms to uphold it, you know, because native society worked in its favor. So if Asabakai was the defining property of Islam, you know, fanaticism, to make race, then Hinduism's defining property, caste, co-produced that. And this, this, this kind of mixture um, between the, 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 these two and hence also Sabakai's lifelong battle with Hinduism. Now for Sabakai, especially after the partition, there needed to be a mechanism to reclaim those who had fallen uh, beyond the pale of caste. This was Shudi or purification conversion. Now Sabaka, um, again in six glorious epochs, if you go to the, uh, that's fine. <laughs> um, the, the, one, the, the one in front, yeah. yeah. Um, so Sabaka in, in this book again, railed against uh, the failure of conservative orthodox Hindu society to restore abducted, raped, um, pregnant Hindu women into Hindu families and society after. Um, after the, the tremendous violence of the partition. But for Sabakal, um, this, this kind of Hindu pollution uh, complex and conservative family structure was quite suicidal, as it gave up reproductive assets. Right? Now he turned to the Devas meeting, uh, on which the Arya Samanj actually based their Shuni ritual. And he found its quite liberal attitude towards women quite especially laudable and wrote, it, um, the, the Deva Asmiti, enjoined that the women forcibly converted to Islam, or those who served in the Muslim household as menial servants or slaves, be considered pure after the next menses, and should be completely absorbed in the Hindu community. Even a pregnant Hindu woman, freed from the Muslim bondage, was to be considered as pure as a barrel of gold after being heated in a goldsmith's chafing dish once her fetus came out after delivery." Now, in the same way as he refused to give up these quote-unquote fallen uh, Hindu women, Sabaka also actually refused to deliver um, Muslim women who had abducted by, by Hindus and, and Sikhs to Pakistan. Because for Sabaka, it was to send down the male line that mattered, the town that mattered. He regretted that the, the ancient um, you know, Hindu writers quite should have failed to consider as pure um, the children born of a Hindu man and a Muslim woman. But Sarakal was not going to hand such a precious asset as, um, as women over to the enemy in Pakistan. And it is also on this point that Sarakal clashed with the state line on the recovery of abducted women uh, and, and kinship that was taken by the Indian government. Now we know from the Nadasa's work um, that Indian constituent assembly members generally viewed uh, recaptured women as reproductive assets and there are those who kind of demand parity in number between the women exchange or those who are like oh Pakistan only gives us whatever old women and we only give them young women and should be like so it clearly is you know he's not completely alone in thinking of women as reproductive assets and there's a battle going on between India and Pakistan Hindus and Muslims over women kind of a common pool of women that both can draw from um, but the overwhelming tenor um, of these debates is that India must rid itself of Muslim women um, because their kind of presence in Hindu and Sikh families compromises India's morality, its sexual morality, its family morality, its honor, its purity, all of these things. I mean, it does this argument. Now, 
Sabakar um, actually endorsed as policy the practice of kind of quiet absorption of these abducted women into their abductors, families, and communities. And that was already taken place on the ground. Um, and this is something that Vina does calls practical kinship. You know, there, there is kind of um, what the state does, and that's what, and then there's a, a whole different thing um, of what's happening on the ground, which is absorption. Um, and then Sabakara endorsed this practice of absorption. There should be an absorption. They should not be expelled. They should be absorbed. And of course, we also know that this, this absorption or this, um, uh, yeah, this kind of practical kinship also contributed to women's experience of violence during the profession. Now to conclude, um, I don't know whether that, if I think this clock is actually stuck because it's been saying 5 um, p.m. forever. Um, 4.59. Okay. <laughs> so that's right. <laughs> okay. Um, so Sarakar cast Hindu Muslim uh, unions as Anandoma marriages, right, in which the woman takes on her husband's social, religious, and for Sarakar also racial and national identity. He viewed Hindu relations with Muslim men under conditions of war, almost. So their large-scale killing was actually assured as they went out there and fight it out. Now, with Muslim men killed in war uh, and, quote, enemy women uh, apportioned to Hindu warriors, Muslim reproduction will be destroyed. And, and this is kind of the, the, the complete annihilation of the Muslims in India that I think Savakara um, wanted. So not exclusion, actually the opposite. I know of only two instances where enemy men um, are included as, as objects of absorption like on a large scale. The first is in glorious epochs um, and in the, the, the epoch of Chandragupta Maya, when Savaka writes, quote, the nation had been valiant enough to absorb not only the progeny of those enemy women, but the whole enemy communities into its own and leave no trace of their origin behind. Again, exclamation mark and end quote. Now, the other instance is truly remarkable and it's not literary. So on 25th May, 1947, um, note the date, Sabakar sent a note congratulating a fellow Mahasabite uh, for converting 800 Muslim families to Hinduism. Now, Sabakar declared that at the touch of conversion, they had been, quote, assimilated into Hinduism beyond recognition and deserved, quote, loving and equal treatment. As likely as not, Savaka would have recommended that the second generation of converts marry outside the group um, to fuse into larger Hindu body But it is frightening. This is, this is May 1947, right? So in India, conversion may grace. Unlike genetics, where there's kind of slow temporal order of mutation and gene expression and reproduction and all of that, for Savaka, conversion and marriage was an instantaneous somatic event. It re-established the broken bonds of the Hindu race. Thank you. Thank you, Lena. That was fascinating and incredibly.